Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal. I believe we're about three episodes in on this. We've read through the introduction and we've read through about half of the first chapter, which is entitled Oaths of Blood. I want to ask people to please share this on whatever platform they may be listening to it on or share this from whatever platform they may be listening to it on. You can share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you frequent social media, inbox it or text message it to a few people, email it to a few people, whatever it is that you do. Also, I want to remind people that we put these episodes out on SoundCloud, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Anchor, Pocket Cast, anywhere that audio is available, we have this podcast series available. So, also want to encourage people to listen to previous episodes if you haven't, listen to future episodes. If by the time you get a hold of this, there are future episodes that are out. I got like a checklist of my intro that I'm trying to go through. I need to just like write everything down so that way I'm just checking it off. But on the last episode, we read about the Carhartt dynasty and we read about deserts and we learned more about some of the political landscapes in some of these rural Western West Coast areas. And one of the things that was enlightening to me was learning about how much land that the federal government owned in some of these areas, uh, learning about how much employment was dependent on the federal government in some of these areas, learning some of the tactics and, uh, some of the tactics and ideologies of the people that are organizing in these areas and then seeing some of the similarities that exist between struggles in that area, struggles in the the area of the Western rural uh, America and struggles that happen in Midwestern urban areas as well. Uh, Also learning a, a lot of new words, a lot of different vocabulary within this book is probably one of the more Probably one of the so, so far one of the books that's on the fringes or furthest the book furthest on the fringes of the issues that we've talked about. Uh, but that's only because we have not read more books that's sort of in this same vein to build uh, build that curriculum out more. So the plan is to hopefully get to more books that are like this. We want to get a, a wealth of information in. Uh, so let's move to let's move on to the next portion of this book, which is entitled Blood Debt. I. My co-worker and most of the other residents of the trailer park in which we lived were driven in our visible orbits across the gold-gray desert of the northern Nevada by the twin gravities of wages and debts. My co-worker had wanted to get work on a fire crew where the wages were better, but he had no experience and no family connection to any of the contractors. He was originally from Washington State and his car broke down in Reno while he was looking for work. He was forced to settle for what he could find in the city still hard hit by the collapse of the housing bubble. In the end, he found a job going door-to-door selling vacuums. His part of the job was the exhibition in which he came in and vacuumed people's floors for them before the other employee joined him and tried to sell them the vacuum on an installment plan. In order even to be paid minimum wage, however, he had to be allowed into a certain number of houses to exhibit the vacuums. In the end, he told me, He'd basically just go to people's doors and beg them to let him vacuum their floors so that the company would pay him. This gave him enough cash to drive out to Winnemucca for the for the Bureau land management job, which he hoped would help him pay off his debts. We often compare debts, one of the foundational rituals of the millennial generation, 
after selfies, of course. Mine were substantially fewer than his, almost exclusively from a $5,000 loan taken out to attend the last two years of college, which had quickly compounded until it was somewhere between $6,000 and $7,000. The monthly payments cannot be deferred any longer, though they cost about as much as I've been paying for rent in the trailer park. His debts were expensive, but not unusual for people our age. Part came from student loans. He'd been convinced by high school counselors to attend an expensive private school where he learned how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics and dropped out before getting a degree. These summed up above, these summed above $10,000 before interest. Another portion came from medical bills. His family was poor and could not afford adequate insurance. He'd broken an arm once in a stupid accident, adding a few thousand, and also been hit in the head by an axe when the blade broke from the handle while chopping wood, adding several more thousand with the necessity of hospital stays, brain scans, and all manner of painkillers. The head injury disqualified him from joining the Coast Guard, the one employment opportunity that actually seemed feasible and appealing, as he'd been a professional lifeguard and competitive swimmer. So, crippled by tens of thousands in debt, he made his way into the desert, hoping that a fire would hit nearby and the crews would need extra hands. As one of the poorest generations in recent history, debt and rent are the defining features of our lives. It is this fact that makes the current incarnation of the far right an actual threat because it increases the probability that some variant of present day patriot politics might actually find a mass base as a program formulated specifically to oppose the extraction of rents from an unwilling population in the far hinterland is translated into a more general opposition of rents as a primary form of exploitation in contemporary capitalism. That's a mouthful. This could rapidly move the far right inward, so to speak, building them a base among the poorer denizens of the sprawling American city in the same way that both left and right leaning populist movements have found a base in an alliance of small proprietors, petty landholders and the various members of the surplus population in Europe, Latin America and Asia. The continued obliviousness of the urban liberal, most recently exhibited as a maddening overconfidence in a candidate as unpopular as Hillary Clinton only helps the far right rise to power unopposed and largely invisible. It's based in the exurb, the Rust Belt, or the third order capitals of largely hinterland states like, like Idaho or Montana. And one of the things that stands out to me from that page and a half that we just read through, two pages that we just read through, is them talking about how the, the some of these far right groups may be able to galvanize people through galvanize people through uh, rent strikes or galvanize people through uh, combating people paying rent because of uh, debt and rent being such defining features. And it makes me think of the book that we just read before this, which was Evicted. And through there, we learned about some of the struggles that people in urban America are dealing with when it comes to rent and when it comes to uh, debt as well. And uh, again, that's just one of the things that stands out to me. And so it's interesting to hear about how this that same issue, which we know is prevalent in urban America from reading Evicted, how it exists in rural America and some of the uh, tactics that are being taken to to combat that. 
And to me, that's one of when you see those commonalities, when you see that in urban America, something's happening in the rural America, something is happening in black America, something certain things happening in the white America, certain things happening. Uh, it makes you understand that this is something that is. This is an issue that is deeper than race, uh, even though, again, race is also an issue that that compounds it or an issue that is that their capitalism and racism are used as crutches for each other when you begin to look deep enough into capitalism that you see that it surpasses racism. Uh, it gives you a, a, it's in a moment of enlightenment. Same thing when you can look deep enough into racism to see that it is that, that something like capitalism can be used as a weapon to perpetuate racism. It's a moment of enlightenment and it makes you understand that you have to be just as uh, combating against both of these things. Uh, and so that's, those are just some of the thoughts I have after reading through those, those two pages there. But can the far right offer any sort of solution to the loan crisis? How can they represent the future when all the demographic trends seem to be going against them? Urbanization, immigration, diversity, and even, quote, literalization, end quote, in which population becomes increasingly concentrated along the coastlines. The truth is that, at present, the most vital patriot politics is largely limited to its current field of operations within the far west, though it may be possible for new strongholds to arise in Appalachia, the historic heartland of white poverty. Smaller groups of weekend warrior militias will certainly pop up elsewhere, and plenty of far-right violence is bound to emerge in all the old breeding grounds of racial resentment, but there are presently few places where collapse is so salient and the force of the federal government offers itself so clearly as an enemy figure, at least to the white population. Though somewhat counterintuitive, the election of Donald Trump will also likely have a dampening effect on the most extreme wings of the far right, even while it emboldens a minority to violent action. In part, this is because extra state militias affiliated with the far right tend to grow most strikingly under Democratic presidents and to disperse under Republicans. When a right wing government is in power, federal agencies become a more ambiguous force in the eyes of the far right. At the same time, Trump's government is almost certain to absor absorb the large numbers of the far right into its own institutions. This is a terrifying phenomenon, of course, but it will also likely drag much of the far right back to center, at least for a while, since institutionalization is in essence submission to the fraction of the elite bankrolling those institutions. Meanwhile, the gutting of federal agencies and the devolution of ownership, now an actual possibility, of some federal lands to state and local governments may have contradictory effects. Rural areas will see further decline as federal funding diminishes and local control of land use is unlikely to restore profitability in any substantial way. In essence, the election of Trump represents a premature seizure of power, opening more potentials for the far left than for right-wing militias. A new American fascism will not spring fully formed from the body of the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters, nor from some unholy alliance between these groups and their more traditionally racist counterparts farther east. The far right cannot be sustained if it remains sequestered in the far hinterland, which is, after all, increasingly depopulated. The focus given here to the Patriot movement is instead due to its nearly systematic encapsulation of the kernel of far right politics in the near future. With the abolition of rents, the Patriot movement envisions a return to the, quote, real economy, end quote, 
through the revival of extrative industries across the American West, accompanied by the extreme localization of political power. Aside from the magnetizing effect of the various patriot standoffs in the far West, it is this populist ideology of the, co of the communitarian, quote, real economy, end quote, that makes the patriot movement of the Western states, alongside third positionist groups like the Wolves of Vinland, an image of the future far right in microcosm. After all, Trump's economic program, drawn from Bannon's philosophy, is almost identical, though writ at a much larger scale. Raise tariffs, build walls, deport outsiders, and thereby begin the reconstruction of domestic industry, driven by the, quote, real, end quote, economy of manufacturing and resource extraction. The main difference is simply one of scale, and whether the driving force of this economic revival will be large industrial corporations unified through a new national investment drive, or instead, the vital force of the, quote, entrepreneur, end quote, petty proprietor, or even, quote, tribe, end quote, unified by local autonomy. And then that brings us to a changing of the passage within this chapter. And one of the things that stands out to me is, and that in, in the paragraph before the last one, we, we read about how the election of Trump, this was written, I think in 2016, 2000, when was this written? Let's see if I can find the date real quick. Um, okay, this was published in 2018. I guess I don't really know the exact time that it was written in. But I thought it was interesting him speaking about how the election of Trump would do more to push far left politics than it would for far right wing militias and some of the uh, farther right politics. And that's one of the things that I learned very early on is that depending on who is in the presidential office, you sort of see a swing in complacency. And so when Democrats are in office, you see people who see themselves as Democrats or are Democrats or vote Democrats. You see them as you see them being more complacent while the Democrat is in office and you see the Republicans being more proactive about uh, po politics and whether that's electoral politics or or high or other forms of politics, you just see a more proactive group of people when they feel as if their party is not the one that is in power in the presidential office. And the same thing, the opposite happens when a Republican is in in office. You see all of these people who are uh, Democrats and liberals and, and consider themselves progressives and all of these things that were in an uproar about regularly talking about how negative of a job Trump was doing or how bad of a job Trump was doing or with the last thing that Trump said or getting Trump impeached. And you see that and you've seen even when issues sort of like police violence, police terrorism would manifest, issues of mass incarceration, issues of racial injustice would manifest, even like uh, CNN and, and started talking heads, they push the issue harder because they understand that people are more those that group of people are more inclined to be upset. You know, it's sort of like a, a a placating type of thing. You know, when uh, Republicans in office, Democrats or people who are not conservatives will are more likely to be upset about issues they think that Republicans don't uh, care about or that Republicans further the agenda on and 
police killings are one of those things. So there's a heightened awareness or a heightened consciousness or a heightened visibility to those acts when a Republican's in president. And then when a Democrat's in president, it's not that same type of uh, heightened awareness or heightened uh, visibility to it. And of course, there's always exceptions to these things. But a lot of times that 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 can be that can be a, a true statement. And I think very much in the last couple of years with the with the Trump presidency and now with the Biden presidency, you can see that sort of highlighted more. The idea that the group of people who have their person in office is complacent and the people who don't have the person they believe to be for them in office is more overtly uh, combative and then vice versa when the, the seat switch. So I thought that was a very important observation that was made there. Uh, and then again, just speaking about the abolition of rent and how much the Patriot movement is, is pushing, pushing for that to be a thing. is just, again, a reminder of the, how vastly different demographics or groups of people or communities of people in this country can still face the same type of issues. <clears throat> okay. Next passage is entitled barbarians. Those debts driving us to and fro across the desert were only one part of a vast ritual forcing human life into endless mechanical processes determined by the vastly irrational rationality of an economy that is premised on infinite growth. But the ritual is simultaneously one of expansion and of separation. Everything blooms outward and splinters apart. Each individual is gradually alienated from all others as the harder production becomes more opaque, the connection between every node in the supply chain more distant, and the basic infrastructure of the world more complex. The ritual reaches down to the depths of human identity. We are defined increasingly by work and debts and purchases, and each seems every year to resemble more of the others until maybe sometime soon, all three will simply fuse into a single form of near complete evisceration. Our families grow smaller. Our groups of friends diminish. Our subcultures are evacuated of all sacrifice and intimacy until they resemble little more than minor bureaucracies propping up the great palace of consumption. When some fragment of the communal does something, when some fragment of the communal does find some space to congeal in the world's wastelands and factory floors, maybe in the midst of a riot, in the heat of a war, in the cold, lonely life led in high steps and deep mountain valleys, not yet fully subsumed by crisis and capital, this fragment is ultimately found, pieced apart, drained of its intensity until it also can be thrown into that same dead, world-rending dance. The ritual has neither name nor mother tongue, but we communists call it the material community of capital. Barbarians. Oh, nope, I already... <laughs> All right, I already have read that part. Okay, one second. Okay. Since this material community unifies only through a wide-ranging alienation that forces all individuals into dependence on its own impersonal infrastructure, the emergence of new, intensive communal practices are a reoccurring threat. All unity that is not the unity and separation offered by the mechanisms of the economy poses at least some level of risk, since such spaces offer the germinal potential of a dual, 
communal power capable of seizing and repurposing this infrastructure to truly human ends. Most of the time, this risk is minimal, and communal structures are indeed created and per preserved by market mechanisms in order to offer a false sense of respite, escape, or, quote, tradition, end quote, each of which is strongly hemmed by the surrounding economy and almost always linked to it as an object of consumption, burning man, or a source of credit, such as church or clan-based lending associations. The ejection of growing segments of the population from the immediate sphere of production also ensures that the old threat of a global communal archipelago arising from the, quote, workers' movement, end quote, is not reproducible in the present moment. This also means that we might call, that this also means what we might call, quote, traditional, end quote, fascism or Nazism is not coming back in any recognizable form since these far-right phenomena were born of a now extinct mass politics. Their programs and aesthetics developed through a combination of mimesis and romantic rejection of the workers' parties of the 20th century. All right, I got to I got to see what that word means. Okay, so it's pronounced mimesis. Mimesis, M-I-M-E-S-I-S. -I -I -S, and the definition is representation or imitation of the real world in art and literature we get a new word every day with this every episode with this book we need to have like a word of the day okay mimesis <clears throat> the contemporary far right can only be characterized as quote fascist end quote or neo-fascist and so far as one hollows these terms of their historical content until they designate little more than the inclusion of racist or misogynistic elements in a political program. As a shorthand, quote, fascism, end quote, is accurate enough, but at the theoretical level, it tends to imply a false historical analogy. The new far right is still embryonic. It's difficult to predict exactly how it will develop, but the conditions that determine this development are more or less visible. One dimension of the intense fragmentation of the proletariat has been an increase in self-employment and petty proprietorship, fragments of the middle strata that have always become active elements in right-wing populist upsurges, and for whom the radical localization offered by national anarchists, third positionists, or patriots seems to accord with common sense. Another dimension is the fact that, without mass industrial production and the workers' movement that attended it, Communal spaces are scarce and their absence felt more intensely. Rather than developing as a form of romantic communitarianism, contra the scientific communism of the workers' parties, the far right today finds the most success in its capacity to intervene in the spectacular communal events open in moments of insurrection, as well as in its ability, especially after the insurrection, to outcompete the anarchists in their own game of local service provision. Faced with such strategic openings, the far right can mobilize its connections to police and military bureaucracies, as well as the criminal and mercenary underworld, in order to assemble and deploy its resources much faster than its largely undisciplined, untrained leftist opponents. In this way, the militia or tribe is capable of fusing with enclosed national slash cultural slash local, quote, communities, end quote, in order to offer communitarian inclusion contra the alienating disaster of the presently existing economy, but also as a violent reaction against any sort of left-wing universalism. This is the defining feature of the far right's anti-communism.
It is not coincidental that groups like the Oath Keepers have veterans at their core then. Brought together into tight-knit units by the demands of military life, soldiers experience an intensity of communal ties that is difficult to replicate under other conditions. Upon return, the absence of these ties easily turns into an existential void as the soldier is not only cast out of their, quote, tribe, end quote, but thrown back into the material community of capital, where devotion to such tribal units is considered not only backwards, but even barbaric. The intensity of their experience marks them as outsiders to the palace of urban liberalism, but the necessity of living within the material community of capital forces of capital forces them to do its bidding in order to survive. Many of these individuals, not only veterans, but those who have experienced basic communal attachment through simple deprivation or religious upbringing, thereby adopt the traditional role of the warrior, simultaneously shunned by civilized society and necessary to its protection. The Norse martial occultism of the wolves of Vinland is not just a curious side effect of their racial theories, then, but a concrete expression of their position at the walls of the palace. Getting jobs as security guards, first responders, or police officers, or simply play-acting in the militia, or Volkish, Odin cult, are all the duties taken with a bitter pride, the warrior patrolling the borders of the kingdom, facing the threats that the soft-handed city liberals simply cannot stomach. In Italy, the leader of the populist, quote, Five Stars Movement, end quote, echoes Jack Donovan's call to become a barbarian, praising the election of Trump with the new slogan, quote, it is those who dare, the obstinate, the barbarians who will take the world forward. We are the barbarians, end quote. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And I think we're actually going to end this episode here. Uh, yeah, we're going to end this episode here and then we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, let's try to keep it underneath 30 today. And what stands out to me from the last passage we just read is the the inherent blending of, of violence and, and the threat of violence or the specter of violence within some of these far-right movements that he's discussing. And then knowing that he wrote this book before the 2020 pandemic took place and uh, there you've seen all the a lot of the far right groups organize around this, uh, the mask mandates and combating the mask mandates. And then as the protest surrounding the murder of George Floyd took place and the, you seen the, these far right movements, far right militia groups coming out and being in having their own protests or having counter protest. And, uh, you seen that escalation of violence that existed within there. And then you've seen the pinnacle of it, which was the insurrection, which took place. And within there, you know, he was talking about how some of these these people in these groups are ex-military or ex-army and first responders and police, police officers and security guards. And that's one of the things that we that we have seen be validated with these arrests is that there are multiple people who are in the police or police department who were arrested in these during the, from this arrested from charges stemming from this insurrection, multiple people who have police ties and ties to uh, first responding groups. And so 
again, one of the, the things about literature that I think is, is very important is that you can begin to see the cycles that exist within uh, human history and within American history. And I think you, once you can identify those cycles better and you can explain to somebody, explain to other people those cycles and they can begin to see them and identify them, you can begin to try to get ahead of some of those cycles. Or And again, I th- I'm speaking about locally, you might not be able to not you might not be able to, but you can't you won't be able to do anything nationally or globally until you begin to do those things locally and then just cohesively on in these different locales be building these type of uh these type of bases. But reading th- reading books like this, you can see that a lot of times people two years back or four years back write about things that come to fruition two years later or four years later. Uh and so when certain things happen in the society, a lot of times people say like, uh, who seen, who could have seen that coming? Or this was something that was unexpected. And when in reality, when you are taking the time to, uh, read things about social commentary, when you're taking the time to learn about the, the climate of, of politics and what's going on, these things don't become surprises to you. These things become things that you can almost predict. Uh, and once you can begin to predict them, you can begin to understand how to react once these things have are, are have manifested, which is one of the things, again, in here that Phil A. Neal talked about the far right being good at is that after these these moments or insurrections or these events taking place, they were good at mobilizing directly afterwards and uh, in the areas where it happened at. And that lent towards uh, people being galvanized by them. Uh, and so. Again, this was another great read. This is different from just about everything that I've I've read uh, concerning the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And again, this is sort of on the fringes, but it's speaking about class and conflict and race. And I think all of those things uh, tie into this. So please share this, whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll holler at you tomorrow.